HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation, family-owned creamery. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com to learn more. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef, author, and vegetable guru, Deborah Madison. In this episode, we'll talk to Deborah about being a pioneer in vegetable-forward cooking, her new memoir, An Onion in My Pocket, and we'll hear Deborah's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. The one dish most associated with Julia is boeuf bourguignon. A well-buttered roast chicken is probably a close second. But if you remember, the first thing Julia cooked on television was an omelet. And while she was served plenty of limp, overcooked vegetables growing up in Pasadena in the 1920s and 30s, it was the exposure to fresh local produce at markets in France that awakened Julia's taste buds to the finer possibilities of just how good vegetables could be. Julia said, When you buy vegetables fresh and cook them lovingly, you may find yourself more renowned for your remarkable zucchini stuffed with almonds than your spectacular crepe Suzette. Julia understood that to truly appreciate and enjoy vegetables, you had to start your cooking with the best ones you could find and then treat them with TLC. Someone who shares Julia's passionate understanding for cooking delicious vegetables and, is you, and who is yet another culinary legend joining us this season on Inside Julia's Kitchen is multi-award winning food writer Deborah Madison. One of the first authors to move vegetarian cookbooks from the health aisle in the bookshop to the cooking section, Deborah's life, career, and relationship with vegetables defy any easy labels. 
raised in the Central Valley, smack in the middle of California's agricultural heartland near UC Davis, Deborah became a Buddhist monk and priest and lived and cooked at the San Francisco Zen Center. She was trained as a chef at Alice Waters Chez Panisse Restaurant in its earlier days. These worlds merged when she became the first chef at the Zen Center's foray into operating a vegetarian restaurant, aptly named Greens. Opened in 1979, Greens was an early innovator in vegetable-led dining and using local and seasonal produce. Deborah left Buddhism and California behind for stints in Arizona and abroad before settling in New Mexico. It was during this time that her vegetable-centric cookbook writing career took off. She's the author of 14 cookbooks, including The New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone and Vegetable Literacy, earning four James Beard and five IACP awards along the way. She was inducted into the James Beard Foundation Cookbook Hall of Fame in 2016. Having retired, in quotes, from cookbook writing, Deborah is now focusing on plants and gardening. She joins us today to talk about the merits of good vegetables for good eating and her recent memoir about her life and food, An Onion in My Pocket. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Thank you very much, Todd. It's wonderful to be here. We're delighted you could join us. So I want to start with slightly, and I mean this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, so I hope you don't take it the wrong way. But I would say my memories of Julia's attitude was that she was suspicious of vegetarians. And I think for her, it was more about she thought you should – there was so much food to enjoy, she didn't really understand why anybody would exclude something. And I was just curious, given your body of work and what you're known for and the way you've lived at various times in your life, like do you have a bone to pick with Julia or do you kind of totally get that position? No, I agree with her. I, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no bone to pick with Julia on that front and or any front. I think people – Right. But I think people is I feel like that's something you've encountered, which is people assume because you've written so much on vegetarian food or vegetable foods that you would be an ardent vegetarian. They do assume that. And even though an onion in my pocket, my life with vegetables or a life with vegetables, try to clarify my my stance on that, I'm still thought of as a vegetarian, no matter what I do. So I guess the book <laughs> failed in that way. <laughs> Well, let, let's say – so you're saying you do actually kind of agree with Julia. I assume you're not actually suspicious of them but that you support omnivorous diets or what? what is kind of your point Well, of view? I do and I've always been very honest about that and I've said in my books, you know, you can have this with lamb or with a hamburger or whatever, some kind of meat or if you want to make it the center of the plate, feel free to do so. It works very well that way. Um, I've, I've never tried to shirk my feeling about that. You know, I, I really haven't. Besides, I've learned so much about cooking vegetables, not only from, from Julia and, uh, but also from eating meat, you know, eating the food that normal people eat and, um, finding ways to tra- make a translation or to, to build on the, on the dish itself. And, one of the things we'll maybe talk a little bit more about later, but you were you were a practicing Buddhist at the center for a good part of your life, though. Twenty years, was it? Yes. 
and was that philosophy and when you were there, were you a vegetarian during that time or within the center? I know you were sort of wrote about there were like there was in the center and what you did off campus, sort of speak. Yeah, really. <laughs> and then nobody knew what you did. Um, I, I was a vegetarian for a long time, but, you know, it, it made no difference to me. I just, you know, it was there, it was food, it's what we ate. I didn't think twice about it. I would probably think more about it now. I see. So it was more part and parcel of your experience as a Buddhist and at the Zen Center, and it that was just part of the practice. So it wasn't like something you were consciously choosing at that time, separate and apart from anything else. No, it wasn't. And so I think, given we mentioned that Greens opened in 1979, so we're talking, you know, qu- quite quite a, a span of time to where we are now, where. Plant-based diets are a big thing. Many, many more people are vegan or saying they're vegan. And also this kind of climate-related dialogue on um, the damage that massive consumption of meat is doing. And I was just curious what your philosophy is, given all these things we just talked about you've been involved in, with you know, what place does meat eating have in our lives? I think it's important. Frankly, and I and even with climate change, I think that that I I always choose grass fed meat when possible, which is and if it's not possible, I don't care. You know, I just won't have it. But my husband particularly does benefit from eating meat. He grew up with it. I didn't, and that's one big difference between us. But um, in terms of climate change, I disagree that. That cattle are a problem, except in when in big confinement operations, CAFOs, CAFOs, or however you want to pronounce. Yeah, the word. I don't know how to say it either. <laughs> CAFOs. Um, you know, I I really believe in in meat as being a beneficial thing for us to eat, whether you so, have it now and then or or what. But I think three times a day, or you know, is is a lot, and even every day is a lot. You know, for us, um, we maybe, maybe I cook meat several times a week, a couple of times a week, for, mainly for my husband. Um, but I'll eat some too. I like it. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is you don't actually think that meat or animals are the source of the climate problem. It's the industrial practices that are the bigger I I think that that's more what it is. I've been on the board for the Southwest Grass-Fed Livestock Association for a long time, you know, twice actually. And um, I live in New Mexico, which is a very, very dry state. And what people have had to do to bring water to the land is really phenomenal, but it can be done. And um, and cows really help help that process. You know, they fertilize the soil, they dig it in with their hooves and so forth and so on like that. Yeah, no, I think that's something I'm very focused in bringing into the the, the dialogue is that animals, particularly domesticated animals, are part of a wider ecosystem. And the idea that that I think maybe some more radical advocates have of just like somehow eliminating them or making them just live free without slaughter, I guess, it, it, it doesn't – I have trouble wrapping my head around how that fits into the overall natural life cycle that was created. Is that something you share or – Yes, I do share that. And I also feel it would be so sad. I mean 
human beings have developed animals for years and years and years that are good for meat or good for milk or good for their fur, their hair, and so forth. And to to just do away with it as if that doesn't matter is is sad to me. It's very, very sad. And I'm curious from the position on the, the board you were speaking of, um, how how do they tend to address it? They as tend, livestock producers, well, they they're they're doing grass fed, grass finished beef, and they have been for a long time, mostly beef, but other animals are included too if people have them, and um, and it is in the southwest, which is a dry area, so. I've I've seen certain farmers retool their roads and dig up trees that are very water hungry in order to make you know real water um, available and it's not only for cattle that they raise but it's also for wildlife too so that's mm. good I've seen I've seen that happen more than once so would you say for yourself it's kind of the approach and also our habits more than it is about no animal. I think so. I, I think so. I mean, I love the grass-fed beef. Um, I don't think my husband likes it so much because he was raised on the grain-fed beef. But, um, mm. you know, I, I think it's very, very helpful to do this. And it's very good um, to have the option. Yes, it is more expensive, but meat should be, I think, and and probably vegetables too. Looking at the paper this morning here, because we're facing real serious drought, and there's a real shortage of food. Um, that yeah, I was going to ask you that because I was conscious of of listeners tuning in to what they thought was a vegetable focused episode, and we're talking a lot about meat. So I wanted to ask you, given those climactic conditions in New Mexico, how how does that affect what produce is grown or or what's available? Well, I think it, so far it hasn't. We've had a very, very good farmer's market. It's been very strong. Um, but I did notice in the paper today that more conventional farmers are really looking at a terribly serious time, you know, with drought and they have to call, you know, cull their crops in some ways and maybe not plant the things they're used to planting because of that. Um, so it's fairly alarming, actually. I think we should all be alarmed. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And what, what are the major kind of produce that, that, that are grown or that fit the climactic conditions in, in, in an arid climate like New Mexico? I'm not sure um, that there is any produce that does fit the arid the arid conditions, except for wild produce, um, which ha sustained people for a long, long time, and it could do it now um, if we chose to do it. We, I think we do suffer from this everything-all-the-time kind of mentality when it comes to vegetables or, or any kind of food, really, um, and that has got to change. It, it just is going to have to change as there's less and less water to go around. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Is that something that that long ago or or maybe when in your tenure as a 
both an eater and a cooking professional, did, do you try to eat only seasonally, especially in terms of like fruit and vegetable? Or what What have you found is your... Oh, I don't have to try. <laughs> I'm naturally that way. Um, I'm a very seasonal eater. So when people say, ask me, well, what is your favorite vegetable? I always have to say, it depends on the time of year, you know, um, mm -hmm. because I am a seasonal eater, very much so. So that means... No tomatoes most of the year, never any strawberries because they take so much water and we don't have the water. I, I do have a row of raspberries, which have been very prolific, but I'm taking them out this year just because of the water situation. They're very, very thirsty. All berries are. So do you, um, yeah, how do you resist yourself in the, in the grocery store when you see those beautiful strawberries that I find I occasionally succumb off season and bring them home, but they still taste like just water. It, or or do you just avoid shopping in those kind I, of well, environments? Well, first of all, I probably don't shop in those kind of environs. But but even so, um, I'm not tempted. It's not a temptation for me. I just don't see them. Just the way I don't see tomatoes out of season, which for, for where I live is most of the year, by the way. <laughs> mm. So is it more just a kind of sense of you felt like you've you've disciplined yourself to to eat in a certain way and fashion so it it just comes second nature now because it's been such a practice for so long. It is second nature to me and I'm not sure I had to discipline myself in any way but um but anyway it, it is second nature to me. It, I don't even think about it anymore. So given that you've mastered it, do you have advice for folks who at least aspirationally want to eat more seasonally? What, what, how do you advise them to kind of change their, their habits if they want to? First of all, they, they need to know what's in season where they live. And the best way to do that is to go to the farmer's market probably because that will tell you what's in season here. If it's local, it's seasonal. You know, there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Um, and I think it's important not to laugh at people. Um, I saw a person at the farmer's market in December say, gee, I'd really like some strawberries, but I guess they're not in season. And it would be so easy to laugh at him, but he was sincere in saying that, and he had figured out that strawberries were not in season, at least in December. They're never really in season here. But... Um, because because of the dryness, as I've mentioned before, but mm. um, you know, to have patience with people, and and patience with you know, just to understand that it's a long ways for them to 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 go if they've never done it before, if they've never gone the distance. I mean, the farmers market is such a good place, and I agree with Julia on that for vegetables, um, particularly. And for other foods too, but especially for vegetables. And that once people begin to experience how good they are, they really do change and they enjoy it and they care so much about it. Well, I will put in a plug for that because I was a terribly picky eater as a child and I only had like about four or five vegetables that I liked. But once I, um, and this probably happened when I moved to Italy where stuff is much more seasonal and local. Oh, yes. Uh, and <laughs> I was like, 
oh, wow, vegetables can have flavor and taste great. And if you eat them seasonally, it makes such a difference because I grew up in the Midwest in the 1970s where everything was trucked in and was not eaten seasonally and was tasteless. And so now I was sort of like, oh, that was like my epiphany. It's not that vegetables are nasty. It's that if you, there's good and there's bad. And if you're only fed bad, well, you're not going to like them. That's true. That's true. And understanding what makes them work is very, very helpful too. Um, for example, with beets, you know, every beet recipe I've ever looked at compare, combines it with citrus, you know, and there's a reason for that. And, and somehow I think the acid is a bridge between the earthiness of beets and their sweetness. Um, maybe it's just the sweetness of red beets that require the acidity, but, but a strong flavor, it always works with bees, whether it's arugula, whether it's feta cheese, whether it's it's um, orange, as in Harvard beets, or lemon, or lime, or whatever. It always works well with beets, strong, other strong flavors. And so once you understand that, then you're halfway there, if not all the way there. <laughs> No, that's great. I also wanted to ask you, I thought in the memoir, you really talk a lot about, you talk about your own practices and evolutions, and 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 you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about how you've eaten and how other people eat and how we interact as a society when you're eating. And I think we're kind of in this era where, you know, to have a dinner party, you have to solicit, you know, you have to have a survey basically of who's eating what and all of this. And I, I wanted to ask you, though, because you, you kind of point out something in your own life that you've done, is that do, do you think we gain something about being much more open-minded about what we eat and particularly when we're being served it by other people? Oh, I do. Uh, I mean, that's a large part of what my book is about and is what the last chapter is about, that, um, you know— I mean, people, when you go to a dinner party or you have a dinner party and you have to jump through hoops for people in terms of diet and restrictions and so forth, that gets very tiresome for a hostess. You know, if she just prepares or he just prepares what, what he or she wants to cook, then that's fine. You just, you know, I think it's important to overcome your own prejudices and say, thank you so much. Um, now, I've always done that. People say, what does she eat? And I always say, oh, I eat everything. Anything is fine. And I used to say that particularly a long time ago when cooking a vegetarian meal really meant jumping through hoops for somebody. But today it's not so difficult because there's, you know, there are whole, whole magazines that will devote an issue to veganism or this or vegetarianism or or that. So, you know, people have a, a lot of instruction um, behind them. But even so, I think the host should just cook what he or she wants to cook, and the rest of us can just go along with it. That's all. Yeah, I'm kind of in that camp with you, where I feel like especially, and I think part of what, and I wonder if it related to also your Buddhist background, which is the idea that, that when you're invited to someone's house for dinner, it's more about, it's more it's about more than just the menu. It's about someone opening their home, taking their time. There's an offering of generosity given that is, you know, should be more <laughs> two directional. I think. 
I think so too. I, I agree with you um, on that. I don't know that it has to do with Buddhism because in our in our community, we decided to be vegetarian a long, long, long time ago, um, as I talked about in an onion in my pocket. But um, I, I, I think that being open to uh, what somebody offers you, their generosity is so important. And that's what I believe in now, especially. Not to harp on this, but I think it's interesting, right? Buddhists as a practice tend to be vegetarian because they don't believe in harming animals or Earth's creature. Is that right where the philosophy comes from? Uh, well, it's one of them. Yes, it is. But would in practice, like if you were still living at the Zen Center and practicing, if you got invited to someone else's house outside the center and who wasn't a Buddhist and they were serving meat, would you... Would would it be, would it just be the up to the individual Buddhist whether they would eat it or not? I guess so. I mean, you could always take a bite, or you could mess it around on your plate the way people do, you know, the way kids do, especially, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But and that's okay, I guess. But I I still think it's important when you're invited out to accept the hospitality and the generosity of the person who's invited you and and eat it, regardless. Yeah, no, and for me, that's like just like if I went to someone's house who was vegetarian or vegan, I wouldn't be like, "Where's my steak?" I would Neither just would I. That, <laughs> right. You would. I mean, I think that's where it's kind of gotten lost. Like, no, there, there's not etiquette that says if you're a meat eater, you have the right to go to a vegan's house and be like, "Where is my meat?" You just right. eat the vegan meal, right? right? That's more of the philosophy I think that you and I share. Here. I think so. I think so, and I'm happy to eat a vegan meal or any kind of meal for that matter that someone has gone to the trouble to make and share. All right. After the break, we'll be back with more from vegetable guru, Deborah Madison. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy a second-generation family-owned creamery in Thomasville, Georgia. Their cows are raised barn-free and graze on fresh grass all year round. You can taste the flavor, the bright South Georgia sunshine, and grass with each bite of Sweetgrass Dairy cheeses. Enjoy a variety of aged, soft-ripened, and fresh cow's milk cheeses in their unique and delicious gift boxes. Celebrate this holiday season with local specialty products that showcase the American South, such as Sweetgrass Dairy's award-winning pimento cheese. There are a number of gift boxes to choose from that include an assortment of unique cheeses accompanied by preserves, crackers, cured meat, and more. These charming and sophisticated gifts are the perfect way to show your gratitude, bring people together, and celebrate this holiday season. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com and use the code JOYA15 for 15% off your next order. That's Julia15 for 15% off your next order at sweetgrassdairy.com. Welcome back. We're talking to acclaimed food writer and celebrated authority on cooking vegetables, Deborah Madison, about her recent memoir, An Onion in My Pocket. So, Deborah, we, we've talked about this kind of um, 
dialectic you've had about being anointed as someone who's an authority on vegetables and being pegged as a vegetarian when that isn't really how how you uh, self-describe or practice in your life. So I was kind of curious if if the decision to write the memoir, and I'm sure there were many reasons, but one of them was a way to come to terms with being anointed the queen of greens without really wanting that title necessarily. Oh, <laughs> Well, I I did feel that it's time for other people to to wear that mantle. You know, I'm very <laughs> honored to have worn it at all. Um, however, I think I don't know what exactly how or how people see me, um, but I think I did introduce vegetables, in, and I I and I'm I've heard this enough that I now accept it that. In the 70, 79 and 81, 82, 83, around there, I did introduce vegetables to people. But now that those recipes seem kind of quiet to me and kind of stayed compared to where we've gone on um, since then. So, and yeah. What, do you, what was going on? Because because I think by introduce vegetables, you mean more like, like Julia did with French cooking. You were reintroducing people to a way of eating vegetables and appreciating them that had kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. I think that's true. And they'd been totally lost. And varieties had been lost, too. Um, we can't forget that. And it was really the farmers who brought them back and the chefs who introduced them to the world. Things like golden beets, for example. I was just reading a wonderful book by Betty Fussell, um, written quite a long time ago by my publisher. And it's she's talking about beets, but her complaint is about red beets. And obviously, it was before golden beets were introduced, you know, or kiyogia or the other kinds of beets that we all have and and have grown to love. I, I don't mean to focus so much on beets with this talk, <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem to be the second time. <laughs> yeah. Are we in the right time of year for eating beets? Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. Well, and what do you think, I think it's helpful to talk about in 1979, 80, 81, when you're talking about there was this confluence of maybe it was, well, I'll ask you, like, wh what was going on? Because you're saying that some of what helped you, which maybe you'll talk about is when you started greens, it was connected to an actual farm and growing produce. What was going on where before that, these vegetables have been lost or out of the diet? And what was going on that brought this movement of farmers, what did you feel was happening at that moment in time? I think there was a great excitement about everything in food at that time. And so much so that, you know, certain dishes that we, that were obligatory to make are not made anymore, like wilted spinach salad or, you know, something like that. Um, but I do think Seed Savers Exchange was very, very important, even though it started a few years later than we did in reintroducing the old, the old ways, the, the heirloom vegetables to America. And, um, and I, I, I can't say enough about Seed Savers Exchange and how they, how important it was for that. And that got everybody excited, especially the farmers and then, of course, the chefs and so forth like that. And, and hopefully it, it trickled down to, to people just saying, oh, a golden beet or whatever, <laughs> um, a black tomato, uh, whatever. I think I'll try that. I've heard these are really good and, and maybe they like them, maybe they don't. I don't know, but we'll, 
give it a try. Could you? For I know you're quite familiar with it, but maybe for our audience, because uh, we have quite a broad one, could you talk a little bit more about what Seed Savers Exchange is, and maybe if you could also add to that, what was it that influenced the formation of it at that time? Well, Seed Savers Exchange was exactly what it said at that time. It was an exchange of people, uh, people and their seeds um, with each other. And that's how they, they, the heirlooms became established. And then they, they, how it got out into the world. Seed Savers Exchange, which is in Decorah, Iowa, has a huge farm where they grow out you know, many, many vegetables every year. And I was on that board for, for a long time, it seems. Um, and I, I was able to, to see those vegetables and to cook with them and to grow them. And, um, and it was very, very exciting. And it's still in existence and it's still doing what it's doing, which is establishing and, and maintaining through a catalog. Um, these old varieties of seeds that were exchanged originally among members. And what, but I guess I'm interested in the impetus behind that. Was it, and especially I think it's quite interesting that it's in a place like Iowa and not San Francisco or even California in terms of the associations with, you know, what is, or maybe the politicization of of food, what, was it people who missed certain flavors or discovered these seeds, or what was the define, or was it just the food in the grocery store had gotten so bland that certain people couldn't stand it anymore? Well, I don't know exactly what the impetus was, but I think a lot of it had to do with the founders, the Diane and Kent Whaley, um, especially Diane, who inherited this wonderful morning glory from her grandfather called Grandpa Otz. Uh, morning glory. And when she started to grow that, she had an aha moment, I think, which was what other, what other plants are out there that people used to have or maybe still have, but would love to share, would like to share with others. And that's what got it going was the sharing aspect. Lovely. Well, I think I, I'm sure that's a big part of it, and that, that's a great story. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to go back to farmers markets because certainly part of your career after you moved to New Mexico w- was managing the Santa Fe's farmers market, and I was curious from that experience, and then moving forward, and we've talked about shopping at them. I think I wanted to get your take on where you feel they fit into, you know, a more sustainable food system, and how much of you know, given that only certain people have access to them, there are only so many. They take a lot of time for farmers to even um, support them um, out of their time away from the farm. Like, where do where do you see them fitting into the the sustainable food system, and how much of a solution are they? I think they're very, very important, and they really give a sense. I did a book on farmers markets around the country um, called Local Flavors, and as I went around to farmers markets, I found what I felt was really something about the food of the area and how it came to be, Um, and it was very, very different from market to market. I think they're extremely important because – I, I don't think California can continue to supply everything, and it has wonderful farmers markets, I must admit. Um, I am a Californian originally, um, even though I've lived here for, a, for three decades or more. Um, but I think that farmers markets 
do get away and they're going to get away from that everything all the time kind of approach. Um, they are a lot of work, you know, but, but our food should take, I mean, it seems like today it has to take some effort. Um, either we have to go to a conference, we have to shop at a farmer's market, we have to inform ourselves about what's good and what's not. Does so actually, you kind of see that um, the added work or responsibility or when people say like, well, to go to the farmer's market, I have to spend an extra 30 minutes on my food shop, which I don't have. I think you're kind of I think you're kind of saying our lives and our planet are are, are worth it. I think they are. <laughs> I definitely think they are worth it. Our lives and our planet. And is your. In your having written that book, obviously that involved talking to a lot of farmers and people who run these farmers markets. Do you feel that 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 farmers are prepared to support them and put in the extra time and energy that that servicing them or more of them in particular requires? Oh, I think they do already. They put in quite a bit of time and energy to show up, to bring their food, to put it on the tables, to talk with people. It's a huge thing. But, you know, I, I just met a woman recently who said, oh, you're involved with the farmer's market. How wonderful. I love the farmer's market, but everybody where I work says I'm kind of woo-woo about it. And she wasn't woo-woo at all. I thought, you know, I thought we were on the same page. But um, that's how people found her and described her to herself. And I was sort of surprised by that because I think the day is coming when we're going to really appreciate our farmers' markets and our farmers. Mm. And what do, you, what, what do you see as that day of, <laughs> of reckoning in particular? Well, when, it, when, when the global supply chain breaks down and there is nothing in, in, in the Ralph supermarket? Yeah, that could be. Or like we're experiencing big drought here, you know, and shortage, shortage of everything um, in terms of food, in terms of building materials, you, you name it. We're, we're very, very short here. So yeah, no, no, that 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 is true, and I think the pandemic that's hopefully a long lesson of the pandemic that um, plenty relies on a lot of different systems, some of which are are maybe highly advanced, but still Mother Nature is very capable of breaking them down. Yeah, she is, and I'm I'm glad that she is actually, because some of those systems I think are rather questionable. You know, our diet on the whole from the supermarket, from processed foods, is not so great. It really isn't. Yeah, I think it's the difference of letting corporations lead the decision making in, in, in what people eat versus people leading their a little bit more of their their own decision making. Yes, exactly. I think that's but, true. But, but to be fair, I feel like you and I had very different childhoods, but similar experiences in that we grew up in places where our connection to visiting a farm or a farmer or someone who was raising their own food was part of that experience. And, and do you think that that makes a huge difference to then in adulthood what you look for and understand? Oh, I'm sure it does. Actually, when I grew up, we went to hostess cupcake factories and places like that, and we found them fascinating. You know, I love them. Um, you know, today I realize that 
we probably wouldn't do that. We would take kids to a farm or they would grow something on their school property. They'd have a school garden. They'd have classes. And I think that that does make a huge, huge difference. We have yeah, a program. We have a program here called Cooking with Kids, and mm-hmm. I'm amazed at what a difference it has made for these children to, to, to relate to parents and people of their parents' generation who come in and who cook a meal for them or teach them how to make pasta or whatever, you know, they're interested in. Um, this is, it's been so enlightening for so many children for a long time now, for over 20 years. And why why do you think that is so enlightening? Are, are there still such a huge number of children who aren't really seeing homemade meals or um, where food comes from in their in their daily lives without some yeah. kind of intervention? I think I think that's true, unfortunately, um, and I think that poverty has to do with it. And, and education and a lot of things. You know, speaking of meat, I mean, the fast food for a lot of people are steaks and chops and those, those are the highest on the hog, you know, high mm-hmm. on the hog, you could say, or on the cow or the lamb or whatever it is. And, um, that's very different than being poor and braising a tough cut of meat for a long time so that it becomes tender. Um, you know, and having it last all week or, or for several meals. And, and in any case, you don't have to feel the need to repeat it. Um, so I'm not sure where, where that, where we started from and if that were true with the kids, but I think that the kids do need, need something. They need a garden. They need some instruction. They need to see something, um, outside of their family's situation to, spark an interest, perhaps. Yeah, and that reminds me of, of something I experience quite a bit at the farm when I'm at a farmer's market. And, and like you were saying, overhearing what other people say or do is that oftentimes people get get to certain farmer's markets or on certain products and they're like, oh, this is so expensive. It's so much cheaper at the grocery store. And I think that's also a mindset. Like, have you found ways to address that with people who bring that oh, up with yeah. you? <laughs> I'm not so involved anymore, but I mean, people do say, oh, yes, it's so much cheaper. And, but it's not really, it's not really that much cheaper. And, um, I know that the farmer's market itself has gone, made an effort to go to stores to see the cost of things and compare it to what's at the farmer's market. And it's, it's different. It's just different. But, you know, we we spend very little of our income on food, and it's sort of a shock when we think that we should spend more, you know, or that there might be some reason to spend more besides the fact that there isn't much to buy. <laughs> mm. Sorry, what do you mean? There isn't much to buy where? Oh, I, I'm sorry. As food dwindles is, you know, and, and there's just not that much in the f- in any market at all. Um, like what's happened with avocados right now is they're very, very expensive. Well, it's not the season for avocados, first of all. Um, mm. So they're not so so great. And uh, you buy them and they're rotten inside and that kind of thing happens. 
But that's off the track of our conversation, I think. No, but I think that's a good point because actually, I, I think you know, I think one of the most challenging foods to um, uh, get in the United States is a is a, an actual ripe fresh peach. But when they are fully in season and over ripening, they suddenly become much more affordable, which I think is true of a lot of things, right? So if you eat seasonably, you will see the prices of certain things or a lot of things come down, right? I, I suppose you will. Yes. I certainly with avocados that's true. Probably with peaches also, but it's very, very, very hard to find a good peach anymore. <laughs> except at a farmer's market. South of France, south of Spain. In, yes, in there you go. Two weeks in July. <laughs> two <laughs> but weeks yes, in, in July. America, extremely challenging. Yes. All right, we're gonna take a break and we'll be back to hear Deborah's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Deborah, what's your Julia Moment? Oh, (laughs) at first I was afraid I didn't have a Julia moment because I didn't really know Julia. But but since I've been thinking about this, I do have a few moments with her. To start with, my brother, Michael Madison, when he was at Harvard to earn money, built her first kitchen, her studio kitchen, that is, in Cambridge or Boston. So that's a The one for her house or the one for her set? For her set. Wow. Well, we must talk to him because there's been a lot of debate because she had more than one set, too. So is is your brother still around? Oh, he is. Yes. All right. We will we will seek out his story. Okay. And the other was this, that um, I was on an airplane once doing uh, leaving for a book tour for my first book, which happened to win the Julia Child Award um, for IACP Cookbook of the Year. And that book was The Savory Way. And I didn't really get to meet her at that point, but on the plane, it was a Southwest flight going to San Francisco, and somebody got up and imitated her, and I thought it was her. I really, really did. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is wonderful. She's on the plane. I'm going to have to go say hello. I'm on a book tour. Well, that was that. <laughs> I found out she is very easy to imitate. But when I did meet her, when Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone won again um, that award, uh, I found she was actually very awesome and a very formidable person. And I felt kind of badly that the book had won because it was described as in, in very simplistic terms somehow. And I know that she didn't like simple food, that things were just, or she said often that she didn't. And um, I wanted to say, you know, it's not really that simple, <laughs> but um, but thank you very much for your wonderful recipes that, that really did inform me and I did use in that book. My husband also met her and um, backstage when 
at that same event in Portland, Oregon, and he found her very, very wonderful, and um, as did I. But I was so excited and nervous, I, I can't really remember <laughs> Oh, everything wow. I that, felt. Those are amazing connections. And so I'm sorry, I'm harping because I think it's quite fascinating because there's a lot of sort of interest in this element of the history. So when your brother worked on building this kitchen set, did he ever meet her or did he meet Paul or he was just a a, a carpenter who was being told what to do? Did, what is he? I think you? he was probably just a carpenter. Um, and I don't know that he met her or that, you know, anything about that. Um, I, I really don't know, but I could ask him and I will. Thank you. Please do. When the I new will. scripted series about Julia becoming the French chef comes out, there there's an instrumental moment that might jog his, his memory that is captured and re- <laughs> re- recreated. So, okay. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Deborah. Thank you very much, Todd. It was a pleasure to be here. We're delighted you could join us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more, it's at Deborah Madison on Instagram, or you can go to DebraMadison.com. Her memoir is An Onion in My Pocket, My Life with Vegetables. It's out now in paperback from Vintage Books, and it's available in hardcover from our friends at Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. To keep up with the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New Friend Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.